you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel as we continue our journey through this book about the life and reign of King David. We're going to be looking this morning at the first half of 2 Samuel 6. Our text this morning is 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 11, and how David attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the new capital city. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 6, beginning at verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all his household. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we might behold marvelous things in your word. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts. That we would know you better, Lord. That we might serve you. That we might honor you. That we might tell others of your greatness. Help us, O Lord. This we ask. In Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a danger in being too familiar with God. We can take for granted our access to God. After all, we are able to pray to Him at all times. And we have many Bibles throughout our homes. And we're not limited by geography or time as to when we can go to the Lord. But that access to God is not free. 
It's not casual. It comes at a cost. Jesus purchased that access. God himself is holy. And we have to remember that. If we are to worship and serve God, it must be as he is. Not as we imagine him to be. And so as we come to this text this morning, there are some disturbing things to us. We don't understand why Uzzah died. We can look and see that his intentions were the best. That he was just trying to help. But as we look closer at the text, we will see that this is not some kind of random tragedy. But rather, it is a result of God's people not taking God at His word, not seeing God as He has revealed Himself to be. And so, this morning, I'd like us to ask and answer three questions of our text. First, what was the ark? What was the ark of the covenant? Secondly, what went wrong? Why did these events take place? And then thirdly, what do we learn from this? What was the ark? What went wrong? And what do we learn from all of this? Let's begin then by looking at what the ark was. Let's try to obtain for ourselves a description of this ark. And initially, our thought might be that this ark is something that seems very ordinary. Exodus 25 describes it as a box. Three and three quarters feet by two and a quarter by two and a quarter. It's made out of acacia wood. It might be not that different from a chest that you would have at the end of your bed that you keep clothing or various things in. It's a box. But it is overlain with gold, both on the outside and on the inside. So it is a bit more than just simple. But after all, we all have pieces of furniture that are more or less ornate. Some of them actually have precious metal woven into them. This is, the word for ark really just means a crate or a box, a very ordinary word. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim, two angels fashioned, facing each other with their wings outspread over what was called the mercy seat. The top of the Ark was the mercy seat, a place of mercy and redemption. And the truth is that the Ark was anything but ordinary. The Ark represented the presence of God among his people. So much so that when the Israelites were wandering throughout the wilderness, we read in Numbers chapter 10 that whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And then when the ark rested, Moses said, Return, O Lord to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So as the ark moved day by day throughout the wilderness, Moses called upon the people to recognize that it was the Lord 
who was moving among them. Now, the ark was not an image of God. It was not a depiction of who God is. It was, in fact, more like a sacrament. It signified His presence. It signified that the Lord was with His people. Now, the ark was also not a magic talisman. We should not get our theology of the Ark of the Covenant from movies. Now, I'm here to tell you this may spoil the movie for you, but there is no way that the Nazis could have used the Ark to conquer the world. It was not some sort of magic bauble that brought victory to whomever had it. The Philistines learned this to their harm. When they had the Ark, they couldn't get rid of it fast enough because it only brought them death and disease. Now, it is natural, I think, for us to think about the ark as a magic talisman, as a weapon to be used, because after all, that's how the Israelites viewed it at times. They treated it like a battle weapon. They would go out to battle, and if things were not going the way that they thought they should go, they would bring out the ark as if it was some kind of secret weapon, some kind of ancient cannon that would dispel the enemy. God didn't allow them to remain with those thoughts because he allowed them to be defeated even when they were using the ark, so-called, and the ark was captured. Now, the Philistines thought the same way about the ark. When they captured it, they thought it was powerful plunder and that they would use it to stretch their influence and their might, and they set it up next to their god, Dagon. But it didn't bring them power and might. The presence of God amongst sinners merely brought down their idols over and over again. The ark is a symbol of God's presence. And part of that is what's in the ark. There were three things in the ark of the covenant. First, there was a pot of manna. The food that God gave to the Israelites and fed them with for 40 years in the wilderness. And that pot of manna, which did not perish, was there to remind the Israelites that God took care of them and would always take care of them. That they never had to be worried. They never had to wonder if God would abandon them. He would always take care of them. The second item that was in the ark was Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron had a rod, and when the Israelite tribes were coming out into the land, Aaron's rod, representing the tribe of Levi, actually sprouted growth, flowers. And that was God's way of telling Israel that the tribe of Levi was distinct. It was to be a tribe of priests to him. And this was in the ark to remind them of this. And then, of course, in the ark, were the tablets. Yes, those tablets. The ones on which the Lord our God wrote the Ten Commandments, written by the very finger of God, and they were in the Ark of the Covenant to remind the people of Israel that the Lord their God is a God who speaks and who's given them law. With the things of God, it is not enough that we just see them as being important. No, we have to know why they're important. 
You might think about it this way. The Bible is not just important because it is a weapon to be used in a culture war. No. The Bible is the testimony of Jesus Christ and it gives us the way of salvation. That is why the scriptures are important to us. Now, David and the people knew that the ark was special. After David had been crowned king and the Philistines had been defeated, David turns to the ark. As we've seen, God allowed the ark to be captured as a judgment upon Israel. But the Philistines learned quickly about the holiness of the ark and they could not stand to have that holiness in their midst. It brought them tumors and death and destruction. And so they sent it back. They put it on a new cart drawn by milk cows and sent it back to Israel. And it arrived at Kiriath-Jerim, which is another name for the town that we see in verse 2, Baal-Judah. It was taken there to the home of Abinadab and then promptly forgotten. Israel did not seek it all the days of Saul's reign, we read in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 13. They forgot about the ark. It was not important to them. But now, 30,000 soldiers, the king and all the people come to Kiriath-Jerim, this small town less than 10 miles from Jerusalem. What are they going to do with this ark? What is the purpose of the ark? They form a plan to attend the ark on its nine-mile, roughly, journey to Jerusalem. And celebration is in the air. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When the psalmist talks about making a joyful noise to the Lord, I think this is what he had in mind. You might picture children celebrating at a party, blowing noisemakers and instruments and dancing and singing and being filled with joy. That's what it was like in the Israelite camp at this time. So why is the ark so important? It was not God. It was not an image of God. It was important because it was a sign that God was present with his people. Look at how David describes it in verse 2. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The ark's name was the Lord of hosts. The very name of it reminded the Israelites that God was with them. And because God cannot be seen, and because His infinite majesty is beyond us, God gives us symbols to reveal Himself and His character. We cannot approach God because of who He is in all of His holiness, and so God comes to us. Calvin puts it this way. He says, when we want to approach God, it is certain that we will not be able to and that He is totally inaccessible to us. Therefore, He must come down to us when we cannot reach up to Him. And how does He come down? 
It is not that he changes his place as far as his essence is concerned, but he must make himself known in a familiar manner. That's what God does. He reveals himself to his people in a familiar manner. The ark was a symbol of who God is among his people. Now, there are three things that we can view about the ark. The first is that the ark made clear to Israel God's rulership over him. That God was Israel's king. That they were not like the other nations. Again, look at verse 2. The ark is the place where God sits enthroned. And David later calls the ark God's footstool in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And what do kings do but sit on thrones and put their feet on a footstool? God is the king of Israel. David is not their ultimate king. He is merely a steward for the Lord. But beyond being a symbol of God's rulership, the ark is also a symbol of the reconciliation that God brings to his people. A central part of the ark was the mercy seat at the top of the ark. It was a place where God reconciled himself to his people. Each year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that the Israelites would know that they could be forgiven through sacrifice. Reconciliation. And thirdly, the ark showed that God revealed himself to his people. The ark was a revelation to Israel. In it were the stone tablets of the commandments. God's word to his people. And beyond even that, in the wilderness when Moses spoke to the people, he went to the ark and spoke from the ark to the people of God. The ark was the place where God directed his people. This is important for us to see. Because God does not change. We don't have an ark. But we have more. We have Jesus. Jesus is our king, ruling over us. Jesus is our priest, reconciling us to God by his sacrifice. And Jesus is our prophet, revealing God's will to us by his word. This is what the ark was. Well, secondly, what went wrong? First, let's see what Israel did. Notice how Israel handles the ark in verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, the Israelites spared no expense here. They built a brand new cart, an expensive piece of transportation. They didn't just refurbish something they had laying around. No, they fashioned it brand new. And they were fervent and excited about this event. Verse 5 tells us that they celebrated. And the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles tells us that they celebrated with all their might. They accompanied the ark with pomp and circumstance. There was no sense of dishonor at all. But 
they followed the way of the Philistines rather than the way of God. The story of what we read in verse 3 should sound familiar because it's exactly how the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel. You could almost imagine David coming up to Abinadab and saying, how did the ark come to your home? And Abinadab would describe how it was on a cart drawn by milk cows and it had gone out with no one to lead it. It sounds like a way of honor. It sounds perfectly safe. After all, the ark came to Abinadab's home without anyone protecting it at all. What safer way to transport the ark than on a cart? But God had not left this transportation up to Israel and their thoughts. He had given explicit instructions in how the ark was to be transported. And the Israelites had either forgotten or ignored what they did all those years in the wilderness. God had specifically told them how they were to transport the ark, and this is what they did day upon day, week upon week in the wilderness. First, they were to cover the ark with goatskins. And they were to cover the ark so that no one would touch it by mistake. And then the ark was to be transported by poles. Actually, in the construction of the ark itself, on the sides were rings for the poles to slide through so that then the Israelites could carry the ark on the poles on their shoulders. This was what God said specifically. And it wasn't just that any old Israelite could transport the ark. It wasn't even that any Levite could, translate, could transport the ark. No, there were a special group of Levites called the Kohathites after their father Kohath. They alone were to transport the Ark of the Covenant by means of poles. God was so clear about how this was to be done that he gave carts for service to all of the other Levites except the Kohathites. He gave them no carts because according to number 7, verse 9, they were charged with the service of holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. It doesn't get any more clear than that. And so the problem started well before the oxen stumbled in verse 6. God had given Israel three rules with the ark. Ralph Davis puts them in a pithy manner. No touch, no look, no carts. You could say that God had anticipated all of the problems and had given instructions to avoid them. After all, you can't touch an ark that's covered by goatskins. And you can't have an ark fall off a non-existent cart. So what we must see is that God did not want Israel to die. His mercy and His kindness were all over these warnings. Too often, we look at God's Word and see His warnings as attempts to prevent us from enjoying life or doing what we desire. But the truth is that God is warning us against that which will destroy us. 
The Ten Commandments are a perfect example of this. We get to see the kindness of God in giving us these commands, these warnings. Who among us would like to live in a world where murder was an everyday occurrence everywhere we went? Where there was no command, you shall not murder. Would you like to live in a place and a time in which everyone came and stole from you all the time because there was no command, you shall not steal. You see, God has given us these warnings as a blessing to help us. Well, we've seen what Israel did. What then did God do? This is when the shocker comes. Now, you may be expecting it because I've explained the problem to you, but it sure comes as a shock to Israel. The oxen stumble. The cart wobbles. The ark is in danger of falling to the ground. Uzzah, Abinadab's son, sees this and he leaps into action. This won't happen on his watch. He's going to save the day. Then all of a sudden, the music stops. Uzzah is on the ground, dead. There's no calling 911. There are no EMTs to revive him. How can this be? How does this make sense? Why didn't God cut Uzzah some slack? Why so severe a penalty for what seems to be even an act of helping, of assistance? And, and when we come to this passage, this is where liberal commentators say that it's simply not true. That this shouldn't be, couldn't be a part of the Bible. They say, we can't believe in a God like this. This is merely the, the sayings of an ancient nomadic religion. It's completely incompatible with the God of the New Testament. A God of mercy and grace. But have you read Acts chapter 5? That's a New Testament passage. And there in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for giving to the Lord's work. Now maybe they claimed that they gave a little bit more than they did. But it's not as if they, they robbed anyone. And even Peter tells us that they weren't required to give. They were under no obligation. But their sin was that they tried to manipulate God. They tried to treat him as if he were just a man. And that's what we see here. Everything David has done was wrong. He had ignored God and his word. He treated God as if he were just a man and that his holiness were not real. Sometimes the presence of God can be a very dangerous thing, especially when we ignore his word about who he is. This was no tragic accident. It was a divine judgment for thinking casually about God. Uzzah thought that the dirt of the ground was worse than his sin. 
he was wrong. The ground had not committed cosmic treason against God. God had given these instructions so that sinners would not lay hold of his holiness. The problem was not that the method they chose was problematic. It was actually probably more efficient to transport the ark by means of a cart. The problem was that they ignored God and his word. Now when you read this, does this cause you to tremble? How seriously do you take the holiness of God? Is God the big guy upstairs to you? Is he a kindly grandfather who would never think of correcting you? No, you need to realize today that the holiness of God is all-consuming. There is no escape from it. His judgment is swift and true. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. You cannot stand before God. You cannot plead your motives to God. You cannot say you tried your best. God has given you explicit directions. Only by the blood of Jesus Christ can you stand before God. Today is the day to hear His voice. Don't wait till the oxen stumble. Don't count on your best intentions. Run to Jesus. Jesus saves. The third question that we ask from our text is, what do we learn from this? The first lesson we learn is from David's anger in verse 8. We learn that God is God. In verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. It is interesting that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah for his presumption, and this resulted in David being angry with God. David was angry with God because God had broken out against Uzzah. This should sound familiar because it's the same word that's used in chapter 5, verse 20, to describe how God broke out against the Philistines. But now, God is breaking out against Israel. How can this be? Doesn't God only work against our enemies? Isn't God the one who's always for us? Doesn't He do what we want? God is not a means to our ends. God is not someone or something that we can use to make our lives better and easier. For many people, He is. God's purpose is to help me, according to them. And so, if my life is not going the way that I want it to, if I'm disappointed, if I have trials, then God has failed me. And if God has failed me, do I really need Him? He's not serving the purpose that I want Him to serve. But the truth is, God is not your servant. He is God. God does not owe you anything. The Bible gives to us a long record of God's mercy. But that record does not mean that God is not just. 
When God's wrath breaks forth against sin, He is not unjust. He would be unjust to deny His holiness. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. It is the confusion between justice and mercy that makes us shrink in horror when we read the story of Uzzah. When God's justice falls, we are offended because we think God owes us perpetual mercy. David was wrong to be angry with God. He would have been better to have kept silent like Aaron was when Nadab and Abihu were struck down for ignoring God's commands. We need to understand God's holiness. If we don't, we miss the central character of God. We we miss the whole reason that Jesus came and lived and died to make atonement for sin. God cannot deny himself just because it would be convenient. No, God is holy. We have no right to presume upon his kindness. Well, there is a second lesson that we learn. We learn from David's fear in verse 9 that we cannot do without God. In verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Perhaps after his anger had subsided and the reality of the situation struck David, He looked around and he saw that Uzzah was dead and that no one expected that to happen. David certainly didn't or he wouldn't have planned to transport the ark this way. And so David says, How can the ark of God come to me? It's as if David concludes that the ark is not worth the risk. God is simply too dangerous to deal with. Perhaps it would be better to keep a holy God at a distance from himself. Just to be safe. So David sends the ark to the home of Obed-Edom. And God teaches David a lesson that he should have already known. Obed-Edom and his family are blessed by the presence of God and the ark. Because the solution here is not to keep God at a distance, but to keep close to Him and to follow His Word. There is no other hope except for the Lord. Jesus is His presence with us as our ruler, our reconciler, and our revealer. We have no hope Apart from Jesus, we dare not keep Jesus at a distance from us. But that doesn't mean that God is not holy. No, we can be casual with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uzzah suffered temporal punishment for violating God's law, but we risk eternal punishment if we reject God's command to believe and to repent. The gospel is the way of salvation. It is the way to come into the presence of a holy God and to be brought into his family. But the gospel also warns us 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John writes in his Gospel. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received God's offer of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that comes in Christ? God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. But there is hope. There is hope in the gospel. Because God has solved the conundrum of how to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. He did it in sending forth His Son to die a death that you deserve, to pay the penalty that you cannot pay, so that you might stand before a holy God, not just unharmed, but eternally loved. Praise the Lord for His work in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.